Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There are plenty of terrible ways to die in the world, but starvation has to be one of the worst ways to go. The average person can go without oxygen for about 5 to 10 minutes. They can go without water for 3 to 8 days. But the average person can go without food for as long as 70 days. Not that you'd ever want to live that way. It doesn't take long for things to go really bad, really fast. You see, our bodies don't work like vehicles. When a car runs out of fuel, it just stops. But when humans run out of food, the body keeps going. Only it begins to go into crisis mode and starts to reallocate resources in order to preserve itself. The body starved of food goes through a series of stages as it begins to feed on itself, starting with the fatty tissue and ending with the breakdown of the muscles when there's no more fat reserves to be had. In the final stages, people typically die from either a heart attack brought on by the severe tissue degradation or by a severe electrolyte imbalance. In September 1953, a 28-year-old stewardess from Westchester, California, named Gloria Lee, began to hear voices in her head. According to Gloria, this wasn't just any voice, though. It was the voice of an alien from the planet Jupiter named J.W., Apparently, Jovian residents had evolved to a state where they no longer used their vocal cords, but instead communicated telepathically. They also apparently went by their initials. English initials. I know. Just go with it. Gloria had long been fascinated by UFOs, so you can imagine how thrilled she became when she actually began hearing what she believed to be communications from a real live alien. But Gloria's excitement quickly turned to frustration when J.W. refused to physically show himself to her. It was one thing for her to hear J.W.'s voice in her head, but she needed to see him in person to know that she wasn't going crazy. Things grew so strained between Gloria and her alien acquaintance that she eventually started ignoring him. Things went on like this for months, until one day, while Gloria was outside hanging laundry, J.W. told her to look up. Gloria didn't know what to expect. Much to her delight, she saw an enormous UFO streaking across the sky, When she later heard that other witnesses had come forward claiming to see the same object in the sky, her faith in J.W. was restored. Eventually, Gloria would go on to write a popular book in the UFO community called Why We Are Here by J.W., a being from Jupiter, through the instrumentation of Gloria Lee. According to Gloria, the book's actual author was J.W. himself, who wrote it by dictating the text telepathically to her. From there, she went on the lecture circuit, captivating audiences with her stories about life with J.W. She went on to found an organization called the Cosmos Research Foundation, which was devoted to spreading J.W.'s teachings about world peace. And on September 23, 1962, J.W. ordered Gloria to go on a hunger strike after she approached some government officials and tried to get them to look at the blueprints for a spaceship J.W. had telepathically messaged to her. 
J.W. promised Gloria that at the end of her hunger strike, he would appear to her on Earth and take her back with him to Jupiter via a light elevator. As you can probably imagine, neither the light elevator nor J.W. ever made an appearance. And 66 days into Gloria's hunger strike, her husband had her hospitalized for her own good. But it was too late. Gloria died in George Washington University Hospital on December 3rd. Incidentally, this wasn't the end of Gloria, though. A clairvoyant named Nada Yolanda went on to publish several books all allegedly written by Gloria, who, according to Nada, was dictating them to her from beyond the cosmos. The story of Gloria Lee is just one such story from history about a bizarre death due to starvation. In the early 20th century, there lived a quack doctor who may have killed as many as 40 of her patients by starving them to death. And these people actually paid her for the privilege. I'm Nate Hale, and does this bikini make me look fat? And this is The Conspirators. The little town of Alala lies just across Puget Sound from Seattle. During the 1940s, much of the town fell into disrepair, as several businesses burned down along the waterfront and were never rebuilt, or others were abandoned and left to get eaten away by the elements. After a few years, the only proof of what the town had been like only a few decades earlier could be found in the old black-and-white photographs hanging beneath the fluorescent lights of the town's tiny grocery and two-pump gas station. For a time, without a doubt, the most famous institution in town was the sanitarium over on Orchard Avenue. But eventually, Dr. Linda Hazard's sanitarium was abandoned and left to crumble and decay. Eventually, all that would be left of the once grand building were the ankle-deep walls of the foundation and crumbling remains of a masonry incinerator on the property. The half-dozen tiny cabins that once surrounded the main building have long since rotted away to nothing. The Pacific Northwest rains washed the wooden pieces away dissolving them into the dirt. The main building, while it still stood, had been something to see. Three stories tall, rising up over its concrete foundation, dormer windows spreading out over the broad front porch, the front opening up onto a grand foyer with a huge oak staircase. The sanitarium contained many rooms, including an elaborate kitchen, an office, and several treatment rooms. A stark white wooden archway over the circular drive announced to visitors that they had just arrived at Wilderness Heights. But over time, as word of Linda Hazard's treatment spread, a nickname caught on for the place that has stuck ever since. Starvation Heights. Linda Hazard was born Linda Laura Burfield in Carver, Minnesota. She married when she was around 18 years old and had two children. Although, when she was about 30 years old, she abandoned that family and moved to Washington to start life anew. She had no formal medical training, much less a medical degree, yet she still hung out her shingle and began referring to herself as a doctor. And through a strange loophole in Washington state law, she was eventually able to obtain a license to practice medicine as a fasting specialist. In the year before she received her medical degree, a patient of hers died of starvation, and the local coroner actually recommended charging her with murder. But because of yet another legal loophole, Hazard managed to avoid charges because under the law, she could not be held responsible for a patient's death since at the time, she wasn't legally a doctor. 
Hansard's methods weren't particularly unusual for the early 1900s. John Harvey Kellogg, the inventor of cornflakes, had gained fame and fortune after opening his own holistic sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, where his treatments were focused on a regimen of nutrition, enemas, and exercise. Linda Hazard believed that food was the root of all health problems, specifically consuming too much of it. In her self-published book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, she wrote that appetite is craving, hunger is desire, craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. Hazard believed there wasn't a physical ailment that couldn't be cured by a vigorous fast. Now, fasting by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Many cultures around the world prescribe periodic fasts for both health and religious reasons. But in most instances, those fasts are never meant to be taken to the extremes that Linda Hazard prescribed for her patients. Hazard's patients were denied food for extensive periods of time, far longer than most legitimate physicians would deem healthy. The only nutrition the patients were allowed were small servings of vegetable broth. At the same time, they would have their systems flushed with daily enemas and regular massages. Pleasant as the massages may sound, most descriptions make them out to be much more brutal than you'd expect. Nurses would pound viciously on patients, leaving them bruised and battered and barely able to stand afterwards. Despite these harsh methods, a lot of patients made the trip to Olala to be treated by Linda Hazard. One was a Norwegian immigrant named Daisy Maud Hagland, who died under Hazard's care after fasting for 50 days straight. Hagland left behind a three-year-old son, who grew up to start a successful Seattle-based chain of seafood restaurants. In Hazard's book, she openly writes about the dozen or so patients who died under her care. Yet she made it sound like she bore no responsibility for their deaths. According to Hazard, every one of her deceased patients fell victim to the various ailments they came to her to cure. Remarkably, despite these admissions, patients kept coming to see Dr. Hazard. Sometime around 1908, a pair of wealthy British sisters named Claire and Dorothea Williamson saw an ad for Hazard's book in a newspaper while staying at the Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia. Though neither one of these ladies were seriously ill, they both believed they suffered from a variety of minor ailments that needed mending. Dorothea, better known as Dora, complained of having swollen glands and rheumatic pains, while Claire had once been told that she had what was described as a dropped uterus. They were the orphan daughters of a well-to-do British Army officer, and it appears they liked to spend their fortune on a variety of alternative medicines and cures. When they learned about Hazard's Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala, they packed up their things and headed to Washington. The Institute's countryside setting appealed to the sisters almost as much as the prospect of the natural treatments did. They imagined a life of riding horses through grassy fields, of leisurely strolls through the gardens, and of healthy broths made from the freshest vegetables. But when the women got to Seattle in February of 1911, Dr. Hazard informed them that the Institute wasn't ready to receive patients yet. So instead, she set them up in an apartment on Capitol Hill and began feeding them broth made from canned tomatoes. They were only allowed two small servings per day. Then each of the sisters would receive an enema in the bathtub that would last for hours. After the sisters became too weak to get in and out of the tub on their own, the doctor put in place some canvas supports to help them when they fainted. By the time the Olala Institute was open for business two months later, each of the sisters weighed about 70 pounds. People who saw them worried openly about their skeletal appearance, 
Their family would have worried too, if only they'd known. But the girls had a history of their family disapproving of their holistic treatments they sought out, so they told no one of what they were doing. The first clue that something might be going terribly wrong was in a strange, nonsensical cable that was sent to their childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, in Australia. Conway was disturbed by the bizarre message, and she immediately bought a ticket for the next boat to the Pacific Northwest. When Margaret Conway's ship docked in Vancouver, she was met by Dr. Hazard's husband, Samuel Hazard. Samuel was a former army lieutenant who had once served jail time for bigamy while he was married to Linda. He had also been kicked out of the army for misappropriation of government funds. Samuel gave Margaret some devastating news as they rode together to their hotel. Claire was dead. Dr. Hazard's explanation for Claire's death was much the same as the sort of explanation she gave for all the other people who died under her care. It wasn't her fault, of course. No, in the case of Claire, Dr. Hazard said that certain drugs the girl had received while still in childhood had shrunk her internal organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. Sadly, even the beautiful treatment, as Dr. Hazard called it, wasn't enough to save poor Claire. Although Margaret Conway wasn't trained as a doctor, it was obvious something was terribly wrong when she got a look at Claire's embalmed body on display at the Butterworth Mortuary. She didn't look like Claire at all. The bone structure, the hands, the hair, none of it looked like the girl she knew. Conway was further horrified when she got a look at Dora, the surviving sister. She weighed only about 50 pounds at that point, and it was painful for her to sit down because of the way her bones protruded. But despite Margaret begging her to leave Olala with her, Dora refused. Things got worse once it was revealed that Dr. Hazard had managed to get herself appointed the executor of Claire's estate, as well as Dora's legal guardian. Somehow, Dr. Hazard had actually convinced Dora to sign over her power of attorney to her husband, Samuel. The Hazards even helped themselves to Claire's clothes and valuables. They took an estimated $6,000 in diamonds, sapphires, and other precious stones. Margaret was appalled when she received a report from Dr. Hazard about Dora's condition, while the doctor was actually wearing one of Claire's robes. Margaret implored Dr. Hazard to let Dora leave with her, but the doctor refused. Margaret felt helpless. She'd spent a lifetime as a servant to other people, and Dr. Hazard had a commanding way about her. In fact, some people openly speculated about the source of Dr. Hazard's booming voice and almost hypnotic stare. It was known that the doctor had an interest in spirituality and the occult, and some people openly wondered if she wasn't casting some sort of spell on her patients to force them to starve themselves to death. It wasn't until one of the sister's uncles, a man named John Herbert, arrived in Portland, Oregon, before Dr. Hazard finally allowed Dora to leave. He paid the doctor nearly $1,000, negotiated down from their original demand of $2,000, to allow Dora to be removed from the Institute. Herbert brought in the assistance of Lucien Agassiz, the British vice consul in Tacoma, Washington, to help him in his legal battle against Dr. Hazard. Although the state of Washington was already aware of Dr. Hazard's methods and reputation, it wasn't until the British consul began putting political pressure on the situation that any action was taken. When Herbert and Agassiz began delving into Dr. Hazard's past, they were able to tire to the deaths of at least a dozen and perhaps as many as 40 individuals. Many of them had been wealthy, and most of those had signed large portions of their estate over to her before death. A former state legislator named Louis E. Rader owned the property where the Institute was located. 
But Raider died mysteriously after being moved to an undisclosed location, where authorities planned on questioning him. One former British patient named John Ivan Flux came to the area with loads of cash looking to buy land. When he died, he had only $70 to his name. A New Zealand man named Eugene Wakelin purportedly shot himself while staying at the Institute. I say purportedly, because his body was not immediately found until it had significantly decomposed, making it difficult to determine what really happened. The British Vice Consul suspected the Hazards had shot and killed him once they learned that despite having a wealthy pedigree, he wasn't as rich as they thought he was. Once again, Dr. Hazard had gotten herself named as the administrator of his estate, and she then drained what little there was of his accounts dry. On August 15, 1911, Kitsap County Police arrested Linda Hazard and charged her with the first-degree murder and the death of Claire Williamson. At her trial the following January, dozens of servants and nurses were brought before the court and each gave harrowing testimony about the torturous treatment the sisters received. They told stories about the violent massages that caused them to cry out in pain, about the hours-long enemas they were endured, and the scalding baths they were given. Other evidence came to light that Dr. Hazard had systematically committed financial fraud against them as well. Forged checks, fake letters, and other fraudulent documents were all presented as evidence that the doctor had been bleeding their bank accounts of money. A rumor surfaced that Dr. Hazard had colluded with the local mortuary to swap Claire's body with a healthier-looking one so that no one would see how badly she'd been starved. Dr. Hazard flatly refused to take any responsibility for the girl's death. In her book, she wrote, Death in the fast never results from deprivation of food, but is the inevitable consequence of vitality sapped to the last degree by organic imperfection. What she was really saying was that fasting couldn't cause you to starve to death. It was always the fault of some other physical problem that was going to kill you anyway that did it. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The doctor saw her trial as an attack on her personally, as a successful businesswoman, as well as an attack on her holistic methods by the established medical profession. Several other members of the natural healing community came to her defense, including Dr. Henry S. Tanner, a New York physician and fasting advocate who claimed to have once gone without food for 40 days. Dr. Hazard compared her fasting work to that which was performed by spiritual leaders all the way up to and including Jesus Christ. In her book, she pointed out that the ancient Greeks thought that evil spirits could enter through the mouth while eating. Cotton Mather said that fasting was an effective method to combat the influence of Satan during the Salem witch trials. Moses, John the Baptist, and Pythagoras all promoted the spiritual power of fasting. 
It's true that Dr. Hazard wasn't the only doctor of her era promoting fasting for health. There was, of course, the aforementioned Dr. Tanner. In the late 19th century, a doctor named Edward Dewey published a book called The True Science of Living, in which he pointed towards food being the cause of all disease. A former patient of Dr. Dewey's named Charles Haskell declared himself miraculously cured of disease by fasting. He went on to write his own book about his miracle cure. Even the well-known author Upton Sinclair once published a non-fiction book called The Fasting Cure. But in 1911, the jury didn't look kindly on Dr. Hazard and her methods. They only deliberated for a short time before they came back with a verdict of manslaughter. She was sentenced to hard labor in Walla Walla Penitentiary, and her medical license was revoked. She served two years in prison, during which time she fasted for extended periods to prove her cure worked. She spent her time in prison arguing numerous appeals, claiming her trial had been unfair. The governor eventually pardoned her with the promise that she would leave the state and never return. When she was released, she fought unsuccessfully to have her medical license reinstated on the grounds that the pardon should have reversed the revocation of her license. The court didn't see it that way, and she never got it back. She moved to New Zealand and she remained there for several years to be near a group of her supporters. In 1920, Dr. Hazard returned to Olala to build the sanitarium she always wanted. But the structure burned down in 1935. Three years later, Hazard, now in her 70s, fell gravely ill. She undertook one more fast, but it didn't work to restore her health, and she died shortly after. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. I want to give shout-outs to some of my new Patreon supporters. Special thanks go out to Michael, Dominicus, Hannah, Abigail, Bianca, and Shannon for all visiting my Patreon page and helping support the show. For their support, each of them will receive a variety of different rewards depending on their level, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and exclusive access to my Patreon-only minisodes, the latest of which I just released today. It's a creepy true story of a pair of teenage girls who tried to host a seance to summon the spirit of their deceased mother, and ended up being confronted by something more horrifying than they could ever imagine. If you want to get access to my mini-sodes or just want to help support the show, I'll put the link to my Patreon in the show notes. You know, I've been doing the show for a full year now, and in that time, The Conspirators has grown and expanded more than I ever expected when I started. But when I first began the show way back when, my original plan had been for the show to come out every two weeks, not every week the way I've been doing. Originally I was having so much fun I started doing it every week. The show is still a load of fun to produce, and I really love bringing it to you as well as getting your feedback. Your constant support has been a huge boost in pushing me forward week after week. That being said, after a lot of contemplation on my part... I've decided I need to return to my original plan and begin putting the show out every two weeks. I hope this won't be too big of a disappointment to some of you, but I'm still a one-man operation here, with a constant juggling of my day job, home, and family obligations, as well as the writing, recording, and editing of the show. I want to ensure that I'm giving you the absolute best podcast that I can do. I'd also like to be able to start doing some new things as well, like doing longer episodes, and perhaps even some multi-part stories. With the new production schedule, I'm hoping to be able to provide this to you. That being said, I'm still going to be providing extra mini-sodes over on Patreon every month, as well as other special bonuses yet to come. You can look forward to my next regular episode on Monday, July 17th. I hope you'll join me. 
As for other news, if you happen to live in Michigan and are going to be in the area, I'm going to be attending my very first live meetup next Saturday, July 8th at Doc's Sports Retreat in Livonia. I'll be there from 2 to 5 p.m. As a matter of fact, not only will I be there, but so will the amazing Nina Instead of the Already Gone podcast, as well as Justin and Aaron of one of my very favorite podcasts, Generation Y. It's going to be a great opportunity to meet and hang out with some really great podcast fans and hosts. If you're in the area, I hope you can join us. If you can't attend but still want to support the show, I hope you'll take the time to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks.